please to Romans chapter 10, verse 18. If you're using a blue Bible from the center of the table, it's page 1048. Today we will cover Romans 10, 18 through chapter 11, verse 6. Today we will cover Romans 10, 18 through chapter 11, verse 6. Page 1048 in the Blue Bible. Next week, I plan to take the week off for moments. And I'm going to preach, I'm going to present to you a biblical teaching on the plight of the fatherless. The Bible, throughout the Bible, talks about children who don't have fathers and also orphans in addition to that. And they are two different groups of people. Um, But with the event that's going on next week, um, I'm going to turn all of my gaze and all of my attention and all of my focus on that biblical teaching. And I want us to explore it carefully uh, and dive into that next week. So Romans 10.18. How did we get here? How did we get to Romans 10.18? I must confess to you that I had originally planned to finish chapter 10 all of last week. Or last week and then start fresh in chapter 11. The reason we didn't do that is because I couldn't figure out verse 18 before Sunday morning. I couldn't figure it out. I couldn't figure it out. Um, and, and, I, and I'm still... And while this week I, I've got a more solid understanding of it than I did last week, um, it, it's not a really big deal. Okay, Verse 18 is not a huge point. In Paul's argument, but we're going to start there today. So how did we get to verse 18? Well, if you look back over what we've learned over the past few months, we see we we have to if this is going to make sense to us, if Romans 11 is going to be helpful for us, then we have to think about Paul and his people and where they were at. The questions that he is answering in Romans chapter 11 are questions that about a specific cultural situation in that day and that time. And don't you know that the cultural situation in one age and in one place is different from another age and another place, right? So we might be reading this, you might be hearing this, I'm preaching this, and it's like, what's this got to do with me? It's actually got a whole lot to do with you. If, and this is what I want you to do, if you enter into their cultural situation, if you enter into what Jewish people are thinking in 55 AD, roughly 20 years after Jesus died and rose again, if you are looking at Gentiles coming into the kingdom of God and Jews not wanting to have anything to do with it, if you can enter into that place, enter into the world of the first century Jew, the first century church member, the first century Gentile, if you enter into that, and you examine these passages, then you will become more familiar with the ways of God and how he deals with all cultures and how he deals with all ages and how he deals with all peoples. The things that were true of God in Romans chapter 11, the things that were true of God almost 2,000 years ago are still true of God today. Amen? Amen. His faithfulness is the same then as it is now. And if you enter into that cultural situation, you will learn so much that can prepare you for our own cultural situation. Because there's things going on in our world, right? 
And God wants His people to respond a particular way. Amen? Amen. So we're going to enter in to a first century Jew, a first century Gentile, and the spread of the church across the Roman Empire. We're entering into that, and we're going to get to know our God better because of that. So what is the situation? Well, here's the situation. Jews... 1,500 years were the people of God and the true God who created them was dealing with them and he was doing very little among other peoples. And he made promises to them, promises to send his spirit, promises to put his law in their heart, promises to send a Messiah, which is a prophet, a priest and a king to rule and to reign over the world. God had promised that to the Jewish people. That Messiah came to the Jewish people and they said, no thanks. And now, for the most part, not entirely, but now, all the other nations are flowing into the family of God. They're flowing into the kingdom of God. And the Jews are like, hey, what about our peace? But the truth is, they rejected their peace. They didn't want to have anything to do with it. And so, the nations that haven't known God are flowing into his kingdom. And they are receiving, the church is receiving the covenant promises that God made to the Jews. The church is receiving it. Now, the church doesn't replace ethnic Israel, but the church is the true Israel. The church is the fulfilled Israel. The church is the people of God. The church is receiving the covenant promises given to the Jews. Which raises the question, what about all those Jewish people? Is God going to have anything to do with them? That's where we're going to be throughout Romans 11. That's the question. Is God going to have anything to do with the Jews? He did so much with them for so many centuries. But now he's working among the Gentiles, so is he going to have anything to do with them? So that's where we're headed. That's where we're going Open your Bible or look in your Bibles, Romans 10, verse 18. I'll begin there. Follow along with me to verse 6. But I ask, have they not heard? Indeed, they have. For their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. But I ask, did Israel not understand? First, Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. Then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of Israel, he says, all day long, I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means, for I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars and I alone am left and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too at the present time there is a remnant chosen by grace. 
But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. Church, this is the word of the Lord. Let's give ourselves wholly and completely to it. Read it as much as you can. Ponder it. Meditate on it. And in a few minutes, your table leader will begin the discussion. So have your Bibles open if you would. The thing that Paul focused on in Romans 10 had to do with man's, well particularly Israel's, rejection of the gospel message. See, people aren't condemned to hell because God does not elect them. People are condemned to hell because they love their sin and they hate God and they push Him aside. And humans are responsible for their actions. It's not just your kids and my kids that are responsible for their actions. But it's every man. It's every woman of all ages. Humans are responsible for their actions. So... Human responsibility is still the focus of chapter 10 as we get into this. And he's speaking specifically of Israel. I think verse 18 is talking about Israel. Prior to this, he had been talking about the Gentiles a lot. For, I think, verses like 11 through 17, he was talking about Jew and Gentile. But when we get to verse 18, it seems like he has the Jews in mind. See, Israel heard... The gospel. They heard the gospel in the Old Testament law. They saw the gospel in the temple and in the sacrifice and the Jewish festivals. They heard the gospel in the writings and the preaching of the Old Testament prophets. They heard the gospel before the Messiah of the gospel came. Many Jews rejected the gospel of their Messiah before the Messiah came. They heard it, but they shut their ears to it. And then when the Messiah came and said, hey, I'm the man. When Jesus says, I'm the one you've been waiting for. They, stoned, they wanted to stone him. They hung him on a tree. They treated him like a common criminal. So Israel heard and they understood the gospel, but they refused to come to God, and they have no excuse. These last few verses of chapter 10, it says that Israel gets jealous. And that Israel is, becomes angry that the other nations are coming in and getting what they were supposed to get. But they rejected it. They had their chance. And so the other nations began coming in. Look at verse 18. Paul asked this about Israel. I ask, have they not heard? And he says, indeed, of course they have. And then he quotes Psalm 19.4. He says, their voice has gone out to all the world and their words to the ends of the world. So have they not heard? What is that? How does that connect to what has come before? Look at verse 17. It says, faith comes from hearing and hearing Through the word of Christ. And what we saw last week in verses 14, 15, 16, and 17 is that there is a process that has to take place before someone hears the word and becomes a Christian. And verse 17 is like the short version 
of that process. If someone is going to be saved, they have to hear the word of Christ and they have to believe it. So the word of Christ has to come to them. They have to hear it. They have to believe it. The next step in a person's salvation is that they believe the message of the word of Christ that they have heard. So in verse 18, he says, they've heard it. The Jews have heard the gospel and they didn't believe. So whose fault is it that they didn't believe? It's theirs. Amen? Amen. They have no excuse. We get to verse 19. And... Paul introduces a new idea. A new idea that's very relevant. He only talks about it a little bit, verses 19, 20, and 21. But what I found as I was studying these three verses this week is that this explains the book of Acts. And what we saw is Paul was traveling all over modern-day Turkey in his first missionary journey. Um, Noel, go ask your mom or Mr. Guy to come in here, please. Thank you. Um, I'm sorry, y'all. I lost my place. Having the generations together gets a little hairy every once in a while. But you know what? This is the right way to do it. Because they need to hear this too. And we need them and they need us. Amen? Amen. Amen. It's true. Alright. So verse 19. Not only had God already made the gospel clear to the Jews, but He also told them, that other nations were going to believe the gospel and flow into the kingdom before them. So verse 19, did Israel not understand? Did they not know how this was going to work? Look at what Moses says, and this is from Deuteronomy chapter 32. God prophesied the book of Acts in Deuteronomy chapter 32. He says, I'm going to make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. God told the Jewish people before they even got in the promised land, I'm going to make y'all angry because I'm going to bring in another nation before you come. Look at verse 20 and 21. We see more that they knew God, God told them the Gentiles were going to come. Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of Israel, he says, all day long I've held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Do you see that in Romans 10, 20? Isaiah's bold. Y'all prophets are bold. Amen? Amen. And when Isaiah said, I'm going to make... Or, or when Isaiah said that God is going to be found by those other nations, that was a bold statement in Isaiah's day. And it was still a bold statement in Paul's day. These two Old Testament quotations in verse 20 and 21 are from Isaiah 65. It was a very, very bold statement. So, 
What we see in 19 through 21 is that these things are being fulfilled in the first century. Paul is saying this influx of Gentiles into the kingdom and this rejection of the gospel by the Jews, this was in the sovereign plan of God. This is how he has chosen to work throughout the ages. It has been fulfilled in their midst. The Jews are jealous and the Jews are angry. Verse 19 says, and God says, I did it that way. God says, I did it that way. Do you see how God is sovereign over the salvation of man? Do you see how he is sovereign over the affairs of nations? I recalled what we saw in Acts chapter 13 and Acts chapter 17. Well, we hadn't got to 17 yet, but we, we've seen it in Acts 13 and 14. And we're going to see it more when we get to Acts 17. Remember, Paul would go into a town. He would preach into a, he'd go into a synagogue, which was like a Jewish house of worship, very similar to what we have here today at Hope Fellowship. He'd bring the gospel message to them. They would, for the most part, largely reject it. So then he'd go and stand out in the city square. And he would preach the gospel to the Gentiles. Sometimes he'd do a miracle. Sometimes he wouldn't. But the Gentiles would believe. And it was a pattern, city after city, probably close to a half dozen cities in, in Acts 13 and 14. The Jews got jealous, the Jews got angry, and they tried to kill the man. This jealousy that was stirred up, it had a polarizing effect. Paul would preach the gospel. Many of the Jews would go to the one extreme of trying to kill him. But some Jews and many Gentiles would go to the other extreme and they would wholeheartedly embrace the message. In Romans eleven fourteen, we see that jealousy not only caused them, when they heard, to respond negatively to the gospel, but that jealousy of the Gentiles coming in actually causes some Jews to believe. So the Jews could not remain neutral as they saw the Gentiles coming in. Many got angry and jealous, and they rejected the word of the Lord. They rejected the gospel of King Jesus. But this jealousy caused some to be saved. When you think about Jew and Gentile, I find it's helpful to think about the story of the prodigal son. You have the wealthy landowner, the wealthy farmer, the wealthy entrepreneur, the family man, the dad, the father. And he has two sons. He has an older son and a younger son. And there comes a day when the younger son decides that he wants the father's inheritance and he wants to go and do whatever it is that he wants to do. He doesn't want the father, but he wants the father's stuff. And life is not about the father and the father's plan, but the life is about him. So he leaves and he squanders everything. The elder brother remains at home on the farm working very, very difficult or working very, very hard. For the father. 
But towards the end of the story, we learn something about the elder brother's heart. The elder brother didn't follow the father or receive what the father had to give him. He was trying to earn things and to have it his way and to do things his way. The, the father, when the, when the younger son came home, the father told, called the elder brother and said, let's rejoice, let's celebrate, and let's party. For, for the sinner has come home. And the elder brother and the Jews are, are standing off and not responding to the father's invitation. The Jews are like the elder brother. They're doing all the work. Remember what we saw at the end of chapter 19? They approached God by attempting to have their own righteousness according to the law, but they didn't live according to the law, so therefore they broke the law, and the law was not a system of righteousness for them to be able to receive the blessings of God. So the Jews were doing all the work, but they were not enjoying the blessing and the fullness of the promises. They were not responding to the Father's invitation to come celebrate. The Gentiles, though, they were like the younger brother. The Gentiles had their gods. They had their false gods. But you know what their gods let them do? All kinds of awful things. But many of those awful things were exciting and fun to the sinful nature of man. The Gentiles... I'm sorry. Yeah, the Gentiles are like the younger brother in the story. They weren't doing the work. They were living as if the true God had no authority over them, as if the law of God, the Ten Commandments, and just the authority of God had nothing to say to them. And then God was lavishing on them his riches, the promises, the gifts, and the presence of God. So the Gentiles are like that younger brother in the story. The Jews are like that elder brother in the story. The Gentiles are coming in and the Jews are like, mm, no, no, thank you. No, thank you. So it raises the question that we see in verse one. Has God rejected his people? And he says, by no means. Very strong language. By no means. God has not rejected ethnic Israel. He chose them for a purpose. He made promises to them. The main point of our passage today is that even though the Jews have done so poorly and been so unfaithful, God is not finished with them. God is not finished with them. And I tell you today, God is not finished with the Jewish people. He has a plan for them. He has purposes for them. And Romans 11 is all about that plan. And it's all about those purposes. So Paul brings up two examples to prove his point that God is not finished with the Jews. The first example is himself. He says, look at me. Okay, think about my life. The second example that he brings up to prove his point that God is not finished with the Jews is the prophet Elijah. So look there at the second part of verse 1. Paul says, of course, I'm not done. God's not done with the Jews. Look at me. I myself am an Israelite. I'm a descendant of Abraham. I am of the ethnicity of the Jewish nation. I am a member of the tribe of Benjamin. 
God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. God is saying, I mean, I'm sorry, Paul is saying that he is a member of the elect. He is saying that he has believed the gospel and received the covenant promises. And he's saying that there's a lot of others. Okay, God has foreknown many in the Jewish nation. And foreknowledge here has to do with relationship. God knew the Jewish people before he knew the other nations. And even though there is a significant harvest of Gentiles coming into the kingdom at this period of history, he hasn't rejected the nation that he started working with many years ago. He brings up example two, Elijah. Who is Elijah? Uh, We heard Pastor Ron Kranz a couple months ago preach on one of the stories of Elijah. Again, if you haven't listened to that message, it's on YouTube. It's on the sermon podcast. You really, really need to listen to that message. But he brings up Elijah. Elijah was a prophet of God. He lived, oh, I'd say eight to nine hundred years before Paul lived. And Elijah had had a very powerful victory. He had defeated the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. God had shown up, had shown himself to be Yahweh, had shown himself to be king of the nations. He had shown his great power. He had humiliated all the false gods. After that, Princess Jezebel put a price on his head and they were out to kill him. Elijah ran off by himself in what I believe was an effort to protect himself. And he had a talk with the Lord. Have you ever been disillusioned and you ran away and had a talk with the Lord? Okay. It is a common dynamic for humanity as we walk with the Lord. So this part about Elijah picks up halfway through verse 2. He says, Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah? How he appeals to God against Israel. Lord, they've killed your prophets, they have demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. So verse 3 is what Elijah says to God. Well, verse 4 is God's reply to Elijah. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. What is Paul's point in bringing up Elijah? How does this reference to Elijah relate to this issue of whether or not God is done with the Jews or not. Look at verse 5. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. There was a remnant in Elijah's day of faithful people chosen by God. In Paul's day... There's a remnant of faithful Jews who will believe, who are believing the gospel, who have believed the gospel, who will believe the gospel. There are still Jews who know God and believe the gospel of the King, the gospel of their promised Messiah. And God has not rejected them. There, in the second part of verse 2, You know, it says he was appealing to God against Israel. And then we hear the appeal in verse 3. 
Lord, they've killed your prophets. They've demolished your altars. And I alone am left. They seek my life. God, your enemies are jacking everything up. They're turning the culture upside down. They're calling boys girls and girls boys. And they're saying you can determine your destiny and you can redefine marriage and you can lie all you want to and, and you, you can cheat and you can steal and, and, you know, kids can raise themselves and the government gets to be in charge of everything and the church can't even meet. <laughs> Does that sound familiar? Lord, your enemies, verse 3, they've killed your people. They're locking up your people. They've demolished your altars. There are evil forces in Elijah's world who were working against the people of God. The enemies of Christ hate the people of Christ. Amen? Amen. Y'all, there's a lot we can learn from this reference to Elijah. What we see in this prayer of Elijah in verse 3 is that he was praying against one Israel while another Israel was walking with him. What does that mean? Elijah was praying against one Israel while there was another Israel being faithful to him. What we saw early on in Romans 9 is that there's a distinction in Paul's mind. There is ethnic Jews or ethnic Israels, grandkids of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. And then, you know, so they have Jewish blood going through them, but there's also true Jews, which are anybody who's believed in the Messiah. You can go back and look at the end of Romans 2. He talks about that a lot. But look back at Romans 9, verse 6. Look back at Romans 9, verse 6. We have to understand Romans 9, 6 through 8, if Romans 11 is going to make sense. Paul says, It is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham, because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. So he points out there's two Israels. He says, not everyone that was born in Abraham's line is a true Israelite. But those who believe in Abraham's Messiah, those who believe the promise of the gospel, whether they have Abraham's blood in them or not, they are truly Israel. They are truly the people of God. These are key verses. This is a key concept for understanding Romans verse 11. So in verse, Romans 11 verse 3, Elijah says, Lord, they've killed your prophets. They've demolished your altars. I alone am left and seek my life. He's praying against, he's appealing to God against ethnic Israel. But ethnic Israel at that time, for the most part, had completely rejected their God. And God tells him, some of my people are still there. Some of my people are still there. He says, I've reserved 7,000 people. Did Elijah see those 7,000 people? He didn't. But you know what? They're there. Don't you know, in the midst of our turmoil, in the midst of despair, in the midst of difficulty... 
God's doing all kinds of things you can't see. Amen? Amen. We all have our seasons. We all have our struggles. We all have our chapters like this, right? We see this problem. We see this injustice. We have this personal difficulty. Maybe we have family difficulty, whatever it may be. And we're crying out to God with these big questions. And God says, I'm on top of every bit of this. For every one sign that you may see, there's ten others that you don't see. Our vision's not very good for the most part. But God in His graciousness, He lets us see little pieces here and there. And that's what He did for Elijah. He's like, you're not alone. There's 7,000 other people that are faithful to me that haven't been killing the prophets. You know, sometimes we, we, we're here in little old Gates County and we see all the craziness going on around us and we feel like, man, it's just me and a few other people at Hope Fellowship. Like, like I ain't got nobody else. Everybody else hates God. Everyone else thinks I'm crazy. You know, me and my spouse, we're trying to live our life and do our thing and raise our kids the way we want to, raise our grandkids the way we want to, do whatever it is that we're doing. And everything's falling all apart around us. And I'm reading on Facebook and I'm reading in the index and I'm reading on the news and I'm seeing all this stuff. And I'm, it's just like, man, the whole county's just going straight to hell. And God says, I have my people. It's not just you and your church family at Hope Fellowship. But God had his, has his people. I believe he has his people in our county. And we got a lot of growing up to do. But it's not just us, church. It is not just us. So Paul and Elijah have this in common. They were grieving over the unfaithfulness of others. They were grieving over the unfaithfulness of others. And, and we, we are there too. There is false worship everywhere, right? There is false worship everywhere. Do you all know why politics is at the center of the news? It's because our politicians have a God complex. They think they are the answer to all of your problems. And as election season comes upon us, you watch how they talk. You watch how our news media portrays these political battles. Who is going to give us what we need? And they pretend like they can give us what they need. We need. False worship is everywhere, and we live in a culture where we are looking, many are looking to Washington to resolve all of our problems. When the truth is, Washington was never, Washington has a purpose from God, but they were never made to solve all of our problems. Most of our problems can be solved locally, and most of our problems can be solved by the ministry of the church. I believe that with all of my heart. Why am I bringing up the government here? It's because in our text we see false worship. The people of Israel were looking to the false gods. The people in our nation are looking to false gods also. And those false gods are saying, I got you, I can handle this, I'll send you another check. Everything will be okay. Vote for me. Don't I have a pretty white bushy beard and a nice red suit? I'll give you everything I need, you need and solve your problems if you just vote for me. And people are looking, not only to Washington, but to Raleigh, 
also. People are looking to our civil rulers to solve all of their problems. And it is false worship. It is state worship. You all, Caesar is dead. Amen? Amen. But Jesus Christ, the Lord, lives and he reigns on high at the right hand of the Father. And he is the one that we worship. And I tell you, not everyone in Gates County is worshiping false gods, but Jesus has many people in our county. He's got people all over this county that we don't even begin to know about. Verse 4, he says, I have my people. Just because you don't see them doesn't mean they aren't there. Look, you know, when I read verse 3, Lord, all these bad things have happened to your people. All these bad things have happened to your churches and your places of worship. It, 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 it seems like Elijah is saying, God, they are winning. Aren't you going to do something about that, Lord? God, we are outnumbered. I recall the story from 1 Samuel 14. We've got Jonathan, the son of Saul. And he's him and his, uh, one of his assistants who was helping him in battle. They were going to go up to a Philistine camp. And he says, Jonathan says to the young man who carried his armor, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised Philistines. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. 1 Samuel 14, 6. Y'all, God doesn't need a big army to win the war. I think the Lord is going to move more mightily through a small number of faithful people. I think that's how nations are changed. He blesses the work of the faithful people. Church, things look bad out there. If you're freaking out, stop it. And just because I'm looking at you don't mean I have a bullseye on you right this second, okay? Some of us do this worse than others, all right? Some of us really need to stop this because it's messing things up day to day. Don't freak out because of how things appear. There are all kinds of things that God is doing that you don't begin to see. Some of you, listen, some of you need to spend less time scrolling on your newsfeed and less time watching CNN, and certainly less time watching Fox News. And you need to read your Bibles more. Amen. You forget that God is the victor over all the devils Amen. that are promoting themselves on your newsfeed. But I don't understand the Bible. Well, that's because you ain't ever read it enough. Pick up that book, turn off that TV, and start reading that book. Do you have the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit will teach you everything you need to know. Well, I didn't graduate second grade. I don't care. God can still talk to you. Right? You don't have to be educated to be intelligent. You don't have to be educated to hear the voice of God. Do you believe Christ? He is in you and He will speak to you through His Word. We're living our lives afraid because we're not living in the narrative and in the story of God, but we're embracing the narrative that our giant corporations and the powers that be in our land want us to believe. 
Read Psalm 2. He's going to dash them to pieces with a rod of iron. That's why you need to read your Bible. You're going to know what happens to them. And the Lord is going to be speaking to you and comforting you and encouraging you. Another warning that we get from this thing with Elijah. See, Elijah thought he was the only faithful one out there. If you ever feel like you're the only faithful one out there, repent of that. I've done that before. It, it, if, it, it's just never the case. If, if you're here today and you've ever looked across the room on a Sunday morning at your brother or your sister in Christ here in this building with you, and you look at them in disgust because they don't do things exactly the way that you do, or maybe they're not quite as faithful as you are, cast that demonic thought out of your head. That is not from the Lord. It is from your pride, and it is from hell. Are you passionate about a particular type of ministry? Like me, I'm doing all this abolition work, right? I'm getting ready to publish a book very, very soon. It's from my sermon that I did in May on the 12-week ban. Like, like you, you know, that's what I've been focusing on, you know, outside of my weekly responsibilities as a pastor. I've been doing that stuff too. But it would be wrong for me to say, because your Christian church isn't focused on that, that they're just missing what the Lord is doing right now and I'm better than they are, Right? We can't compare ourselves to other people. Be careful. Don't exalt yourself thinking that you're the only one or that you're better than all the other people. Some of the people who aren't doing as great as you might be doing are just younger in the faith than you. And there's some people who have freedom to do things that you don't have freedom to do and you're looking at them and you're judging them. Well, Romans 14 speaks to that. We'll get to that soon. Don't judge your brother about stupid stuff that God hasn't made clear. Beware of how you view other individuals and other churches and don't ever think that you've got it all together and that you're so much better than them. We all have some things together that other people don't have, but those other people have other things together that you you and I desperately need. We get to verse 4. We see here that not everyone is worshiping false gods. What is God's reply to Elijah? I've kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Who's Baal? Baal was the false god of that day. God is saying there's other people that are truly worshiping me. I love the beginning of God's response. He says, I have kept. I have kept. We've learned about God's sovereign election. God didn't have to reach down and grab any sinner. But he reached out and grabbed a bunch of them, didn't he? Amen. And you know, we haven't got into this a lot, but there's a doctrine called the perseverance of the saints. And that means whomever God chooses, God will work in in such a way that they will be faithful to the end. So in verse 4, when God says, I have kept, it means he reached out and he grabbed you, and he ain't letting go. Amen. He hasn't let go yet, Amen. and he will not let go. He says, I have kept. So we see... That the people of God aren't here because some people choose to follow God, but the primary reason the people of God here is because the people of God are here. The primary reason there is a remnant of Jews in Paul's day, the primary reason that there are faithful people of God today is because God has grabbed them and he is keeping them. Elijah probably did not understand this. See, God has his people at every time and everywhere throughout history that he wants them. 
Is God faithful to fulfill his covenant? Yes. And what did he promise? He told Abraham, through you, I will bless the nations. A period of history is coming when all the nations come. What did God say to the serpent? After Adam and Eve believed the serpent and submitted to his authority and sinned, he told the serpent in Genesis 3.15, I'm going to crush your head. And that happened at the cross. But he's still kicking and limping a little bit. The completion of that victory over Satan will come, church. It will come. God is faithful to fulfill his covenant. And no matter how bad anything looks at any point in time, it will be done. It will be done. So verse 5, why is there a remnant? It's because of God's grace. It is because of his gracious election of sinners. The remnant is chosen by grace. Amen? Amen. And if it's by grace, then did someone have to do something to earn it? No. And that's what verse 6 says. So too, with the, I'm sorry, but if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. See, here's what grace does. You receive the grace of God, and then God's grace empowers you to work. But sometimes we get it wrong, and we say, you know what? I'm going to work and be really good for God, and maybe he'll give me something. You all, work always comes after grace. Work is always a response to grace. Grace never comes as a result of work. We don't earn anything for God, but God pours out his grace on people. And in response to that grace and that power that now dwells within, then we work and we do the things that God has called us to do. So I have a question for you. Is God done with the Jews? No, he is not. Does he have his people at every time, in every age, wherever he wants them? As our nation is falling apart, and it it certainly is, as you are being tempted to retreat and to hide or hunker down, Are you alone? No. Our God is with us. As false worship arises, as the prophets are thrown in jail or condemned, as the altars of Baal, I'm sorry, as the altars of God are torn down, as we are told, you all can't meet on Sundays anymore because somebody might get sick. Yeah, I'm not going to swallow that one again. As beasts rise up to challenge the people of God, I assure you, we are not alone. God is fulfilling his covenant with the world right now. And we are the people of God. Y'all, we got a front row seat. 
Y'all ready? Y'all ready? We're going to do it. And our Lord is going to show himself victorious. Let's pray.